0: Well, I want to thank Tim for the introduction and the kind words. Um, it's really Tim that introduced me to the RD position. I don't know whether I should be mad mad about that or, or happy. But uh, in March of this year, I had no clue what an RD was. And uh, I'm just very thankful for the Lord to put Tim in my life, going to Africa. And then all of a sudden, a few months later, I'm, I'm here at the Master's College in a Christian environment, speaking to however many students there are. and. Uh, it's just been a real blessing to my life. He's, he's shown me my sinfulness and, and, and uh, my ungratefulness, but this has been a great opportunity here. I, I love it here. I feel like I'm a part of the Master's College, and, and I'm really, really uh, thankful to be here. Before we look at, into the Word, why don't I just uh, pray for us that the Lord would be honored through this. Dear Heavenly Father, God. Yours is the glory and the honor and the praise. And Father, I just would pray that you truly would be honored through your word today. That you would keep me from myself and keep me from getting in the way of what you have to say. I'd ask that Jesus Christ would be exalted above all things. You would prepare our hearts and that you would change us and we would be different people because of, of what your word has had to say to us today and, and how your spirit has used it in our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this summer in Africa... As Tim told you, I did rescue a Bible out of an outhouse, but it wasn't six feet. My arm's not six feet long. I didn't didn't stick my whole body and have somebody hold my feet or anything. But I uh, I did get to pull that out of there. I just I felt compelled to do that. There was such a look on, on Laura's face when she told me about it that I had to do it. But uh, in Africa, we went to Kenya and Uganda, and most all the people that we met there would would tell you that they were Christians. They would say, "Oh yeah, I'm a Christian." But after talking to them, it was quite evident that really they meant that they went to church or that they had been baptized or that they took communion. I started asking them as we spoke in their schools. We got a chance to speak in about two or three to four schools per day and just preach straight out of the Bible. And uh, oftentimes I would ask them as we spoke uh, what they thought that it meant to be baptized or, or to be a Christian, to, be, to go to church, uh, why they took part in communion why they said that they followed the Lord. And uh, as I was thinking of what the Lord had had me say here this morning, it kind of dawned on me that maybe we need to ask ourselves those same questions once in a while in the Christian uh, walk in life. I started wondering the same types of things about us here at Master's College. Why are, why are we at a Christian college? Why do I go to chapel? Because they make me, huh? Um, why do I go to church or even Bible classes for that matter? There's some questions that I ask myself. Uh, what fuels my life? If we want to get to the very base level, what is the true, blue, bottom-line reason I call myself a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ? Jesus in John chapter six made some hard statements about true Christianity, and most of them most people at the time called them startling and harsh. Some people probably thought they were bizarre and morbid, but he said these difficult sayings to divide the pretenders of the faith from those who were the real, true, true believers. Christ wanted those to those who were following him at the time, and us, by the way, to realize what eternal life really was, and meant, and where their affections really lied, and to analyze just why they followed him. For the first two and a half years of Jesus's ministry here on the earth, he was increasingly popular with the masses of Palestine. He was a very popular man, and this is the setting that we come to in John chapter six. Uh, in John 6, we see him feeding the 5,000 with two fishes and the five loaves. You guys are familiar with that. And this is the only miracle, by the way, that is um, recorded in all four Gospels. And it, it kind of highlights the significance of that. This miracle and its following discourse is, is a major turning point in Jesus' earthly ministry. After this, his popularity basically collapsed. It was no more. People had a hard, had hardheartedly rejected him and his offer of the messianic kingdom uh, for the nation. And by the time we get into to, uh, John chapter seven, verse one, it says that the Jews, the professional religious leaders of the day, were seeking to kill him. But at the beginning of John chapter six, remember, he's still very, very popular and somewhat of a folk hero and a, and a faith healer type of uh, crowd gathering around him. Person, um, let's read John six two here, and it says. John chapter 6, verse 2. A great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. A great multitude followed because they saw the signs which he was performing on the sick. They were being entertained and filled with excitement to see Jesus the miracle worker. But as we'll see in verse 26 of this same chapter, they didn't understand what these signs meant. They didn't understand that these signs were attesting miracles to his deity, that he was God in human flesh and the Messiah of Israel they only saw the external things Now you guys know the story of John 6 the feeding of the 5,000 the multi, this multitude follows Jesus it gets late in the day and the crowd is hungry and weary uh, the Gospel of Mark says that Jesus felt compassion upon them so he has the crowd sit down and he, and he proceeds to feed them all with a boys dinner of five uh, barley loaves which in my study the scholars say that that's like pancake sized pieces of bread So with five of those and two small fishes, it says he fed the crowd. He fed all the crowd miraculously. And then they gathered the leftover bread and and filled 12 baskets full. So then what happens? Look at verse 15 of John 6. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The crowds wanted to make him king on their terms so that he would meet their needs and expectations and demands and provide food and a life of uh, of ease for them. In reality, Jesus Christ is king and you and I know that. But he deals with people only on his own terms. Then the story continues. The evening hits. I'm I'm bringing you up to speed on what's happening in John 6. The evening hits. Uh, The disciples get in a boat and start rowing across the Sea of Galilee. A storm picks up. They're making no headway. They're rowing away. The storm, they can't get to the other side. And lo and behold, what happens? Jesus comes walking on the, on the water to them. They're afraid. He reassures them. They let him into the boat, and immediately it says they're at shore. The next day, the multitude that Jesus had just fed, they wake up, and they start looking for Jesus. They're probably hoping to be fed miraculously, free of charge again. Finally, they go by boat, and they find him on the other side of the sea. When they find him, they ask him when he had gotten there. It's funny because John goes into the trouble of telling us that there were no other boats in that vicinity that had gone. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to note that spiritually blind people that are only concerned with the external things of life don't even ask the right questions. You would think they would have said, Jesus, how did you get here? But they said, when? But it's neither here nor there because Jesus answers neither of those questions. And he immediately looks right into their heart He omnipotently looks directly into their minds and he tells them their real need. Let's look at verses 26 through 29. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And they said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Christ says, You people aren't seeking me out because you see and understand the signs as pointing to my deity and my lordship. You're interested in temporal, earthly things. You want your stomachs filled, basically, is what he's saying. He's saying you should be more interested in me than food because food perishes. But I'm eternal and I give eternal life. Don't be burdened with thoughts about food, but be burdened about the things of God. That's basically what he's saying in those verses. And then in, in look at verses 30 and 31, he says, or the crowd says, "They said to him, "What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you?" They understood what he was calling for. What then do you do for a sign that we may believe you? What work do you perform?" Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They actually had the nerve to ask him, after a day earlier eating the the bread that he fed them miraculously, they actually had the nerve to ask him to produce a sign. And then they point, point to Moses as giving them bread from heaven. And then Jesus responds in the following verses, 32 through 50. He says, I am the living bread from heaven. Moses gave you bread that fell each day, and the fathers ate and died. But I am the bread that descended, the true manna that descended from heaven, and I, that if you eat of me, you'll never die. Now these claims no doubt troubled the crowd. They had a hard time understanding his intent when he called himself bread, and now he claims to have come down from heaven. They at least thought they knew his family and where he came from. But Jesus doesn't cater to unbelief. He doesn't answer the questions he, and the accusations. He only speaks the truth. In fact, he makes his claims even harder to swallow, if you will, and even more graphic. So this is where I want to hit on today is verses 51 and on. Let's turn to verses 51. It's our main text for this morning, and we'll see three major points concerning eternal life and true Christianity in this portion of John's gospel. We'll see Jesus answer the question, what is true Christianity and and thus eternal life? Then we'll see him answer the question, What is man's own ability to achieve eternal life and why? And finally, we'll see the two possible responses to eternal life. So let's read verses 51 through 59. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus, therefore, said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me this is the bread which came out of heaven not as the fathers ate and died he who eats this bread shall live forever these things he taught in the synagogue as he taught in capernaum in these verses jesus delineates to us just exactly what it means to be a true follower of him what it means to be a true christian in doing so he explains also the terms of eternal life Now, many, many people think, and as I was telling people, they say, well, what are you studying? I say, John chapter 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood. They're saying, oh, communion, huh? Um, No, most people think immediately of communion when they read those verses, but I'm convinced that it has nothing, it it doesn't mean communion, the sacrament of communion at all. First of all, communion wasn't instituted until a year later. Wasn't instituted until a year later. Secondly, Jesus was speaking to non-believers. Not the church, not his believers. Thirdly, verse 54 uh, Thirdly, verse fifty-four says that eating and drinking is unto salvation. That this eating and drinking produces salvation. And this would be a work of eating and drinking that would actually bring salvation instead of being a, a time of memorial and fellowship and reflection that we know from uh, some uh, the other passages on communion. And we know that from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that what? Salvation is a gift of God, of grace through faith and not by human works. And lastly, this has n- this is not communion or because he isn't speaking of the sacrament of communion because thousands of people eat the Lord's Supper, you and I know it, daily in Catholic churches and they have no clue about God, they have no clue about the Bible, and they have no clue about the redeemed life that comes from knowing Jesus Christ personally. So this cannot be talking about communion. So if Christ isn't speaking of communion here, what exactly is he saying? First of all, verse 51 makes it clear that he's saying he came down from heaven. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. He's saying, I came from heaven. I am God in human flesh. It is also clear from this verse that he will give his own flesh for the life of the world. And this is is a, a prediction of his death, his sacrifice on the cross for us. Next, it's important to remember that the Jewish people... As they heard him speak this sermon, the Jewish people were forbidden to eat blood. That's why it's so repulsive to him. In Leviticus 3.17, they're forbidden to eat blood. And also they were familiar with the, uh, the blood atonement. As, as a, you look into Leviticus 17, verses 10 and onward, that the shedding of blood made atonement for sin. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. For it is, by, it, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So in our passage in John 6, Christ's statements were extremely graphic, somewhat repulsive and harsh to them, but not un ununderstandable. Not un- if you know what I mean. If they really searched their hearts and minds and were willing to accept, they were not ununderstandable. And he purposely made them harsh. The Jews in verse 52 were trying to understand him taking his words on an absurdly literal basis. How can he give us his flesh to eat? They were missing the point. Jesus Christ was saying, I am eternal life. You must appropriate me and my death and my shed shed blood. He is true food and drink. Just as physical bread gives physical sustenance, Jesus Christ, the true bread, gives spiritual sustenance. Jesus is saying to, to a follower of him, if you really want to follow me, I must be everything to you. Bottom line, true boo, the real deal... Christianity is Jesus Christ is everything to a believer and just like physical bread you can look at it you can admire its qualities and you can even know what's in it and how it how nourishing it it is but unless you eat of it unless you partake of it or consume it and make it part of you it does you absolutely no good unless and just like Jesus Christ his person his work and his words are inseparable and unless you take him into your innermost being it means nothing. Your admiration of him or your your words that honor him is if he's not inside of you, it means absolutely nothing. Jesus in person is God in human flesh, thus eternal life. Jesus's work on the cross is the eternal payment and propitiation. His work of atonement means eternal life, and Jesus's words requiring allegiance to himself are eternal life encapsulated. A good way of understanding verse fifty-four where it says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, is to look back now at verse 40. Flip back to verse 40. It says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you notice that the language is sil- is very similar? Eating his flesh and drinking his blood is the same as beholding and believing. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he says and what he's accomplished, then you have eaten his flesh and drank his blood and he is everything to you. That he had explained to these people that he had spoken to, he explained what it meant to eat his flesh And drink his blood it's to see him and to believe in him and to take him in and come to him notice verse 56 he who Christ is everything to will abide in him or remain in him look very quickly over at John 15 John 15 verses 4 and onward it says abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself Unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Very quickly, John 8:31, I think really explains it and encapsulates it says Jesus therefore was saying to them John eight thirty one. Jesus was therefore saying to those Jews who had believed him if you abide in my word then you are truly my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free if you abide in my word then truly you are my disciples no doubt we at all at times stumble and fall and stray from the Lord we love but in the end Jesus is saying you will abide because we will abide in you You will persevere to the end. And then verse 59 tells us where these things took place. But the message of this section of scripture is clear in John 6. And that is that Jesus Christ is everything to a true believer. His death and the shedding of his blood is the propitiation for our sins. His righteousness is our righteousness. His life is our life. And Jesus Christ is everything to us. Next we see in verses 60 and 65... Jesus describing man's ability to achieve this eternal life on his own. Verses 60 through 65 says this. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Jesus' popularity is faltering big time now. Uh, People are leaving, they're murmuring, they're grumbling, they're mumbling about the severity and the harshness of his words. And they, and they didn't understand his words because they were unwilling to accept them. Again, Jesus being all-knowing, he reads their hearts and addresses the real issue. And even answers any objections. This was a hard part of scripture. As I was looking and reading, I'm going, now what in the world is he, is he talking about here? And reading it over and over and over again. And you read different commentaries and the whole works. But I've, I, uh, what he's really saying is, he's, he's saying... Does this entrap you in your sin? Does this cause you to stumble these things I've said about how I must be everything to you? Does this ensnare you after you've seen me miraculously feed you? How much more offensive will it be if you see me go, go back up to heaven and still don't believe? That's what he's saying. They, they said they couldn't understand how this man could have come down from heaven. And, and they didn't understand how this man could give him, give them his flesh to eat. And Jesus answers in effect by saying, Will you believe that, 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 that heaven is where I came from if you see me ascend back up there? Or will you believe that I'm not talking about my literal flesh if you see me go up there in my body and there's no literal chunks of flesh bitten out of my bicep and my calf? You know, He's saying, if you see me, then will you believe? No, you're, you're, you're hard-hearted in your unbelief and your rebellion. Christ is saying that their unbelief was willful and obstinate and would offend them straight into hell if they wouldn't forsake their sin and love for self and turn to him. Verse 62 indicates that man has no ability to achieve eternal life on his own because of that hard-hearted unbelief and rebellion. Verse 63 says that man has no ability to achieve eternal life on his own because it's the Spirit who gives life. He's also answering them about his flesh again. He's saying, "Stop thinking literally about my flesh, it is my spirit, my person that you need to consume and take into your innermost being. Then he says that he's speaking the words of God, which are alive and active and able to save helpless men. These words that I have spoken to you are spirit and our life, he says in verse 63. Then in verse 65 again man is seen as completely and totally unable to come to Christ and achieve this eternal life. Now this is very, very hard to swallow. Even for us in here to, to understand that, our brains will burn on it if we think about it too hard. It's total inability is what he's saying. Man in Adam went so far astray that no one has ever sought for God. No one can come to God unless the Father grants that the Spirit should cause him to seek for God. This denotes the sovereign election of the saints that you see in Ephesians 1 and, and many other passages. But similar thoughts are seen in verses 37 and 44 of our chapter. Let's look at those real quickly. All that the Verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Total human inability sovereign election, and human responsibility. All that come to me, all that the Father has come to me, and I will no way cast out. So you've got total human inability, sovereign election, and human responsibility, and they're all wrapped up in these verses here in John 6. And it's perplexing to our finite minds, but Scripture sets it forth as true. Hebrews 19... Er, hello, there's no Hebrews 19, is there? Hebrews, a uh, little mistake there in the typage... Um, <laughs> Hebrews 9, I believe, or 10. What's next to the 9 on the keyboard? I don't know. Uh, It says, my righteous one shall live by faith. You guys know that. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to preserving of the soul. So, so far we've answered three questions. What is eternal life and true Christianity? The answer, Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. Can man achieve eternal life on his own? No, he's completely dead, unable even to respond to God. And why is this so? Unbelief, hard-hearted unbelief, rejection, and sin. So when you see that, you see eternal life, you see man's ability is absolutely zero. There's only two responses in the world that man have ever made to that information, and we see them both, in verses 66 through 69. Let's read those. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said therefore to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you... Are the Holy One of God. So the first response in verse 66, the first response to seeing eternal life, to seeing your own inability, and this is what happens in the first response, and the majority of the people that have ever lived do this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. As a result of Christ's demand for supremacy in their lives and his spirit-filled words that that dealt a death blow to their self-righteousness, their self-esteem, and their human achievement, it says many of them turned away. They turned their back on Almighty God. They turned their back on eternal life. This is the most common response of mankind throughout all of human history. Romans 1 says that all men come face to face with the knowledge of God and all men turn their backs on him. They consume the flesh and drink the blood of their own man-made gods of wealth and self and power and sex and sports and entertainment and man-made religion and everything else that you can think of. Yet God is still gracious and still draws men to himself and his own glory. Now, when when God draws man to himself, this results in the other response. And we see that in verses 67 through 69. It's the response of faith. It says, Lord... To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The response of a man who sees himself helpless and hopeless before Almighty God, but in spite of the paradox and the difficulties, he believes. That's the response of faith. The response of seeing Jesus Christ and he's more precious and more beautiful and you see yourself and you're you're sinful and you're ugly and you're going, God, how can these things be? I have no way to get to you. I have nothing. Have mercy upon my soul. That is the response of faith the man this is the response of a man who has tasted and eaten of Christ and no longer could be satisfied with anything else or himself only Jesus Christ could fulfill the longings of him of his soul psalm 73:25 says what whom have I in heaven but thee and besides thee I desire nothing on earth finally in verses 70 and 71 as a side note they give a grave warning to some who will even still outwardly go along with Christ's hard sayings. They will go along with these, these things that he said, but inwardly their children are wrath. The warning cries out, beware. God knows your heart. He knew those who would betray him. You cannot fool and play games with God. He is the all-knowing eternal life who alone rescues us from the eternal death we deserve. We must run to him for forgiveness and mercy and refuge. Luke 9:23 through 26 says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his, his or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And then in Mark 9, what's it say? It says, Eternal death is where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. The Bible proclaims that we should turn every man from our own ways and believe in and trust and love Jesus Christ. Since man can do nothing to save himself, God became a man and lived the perfect lives that we were to live. This man who is God is Jesus Christ. He died for sinners. He rose again that all who put their faith in him would live forever. He is the refuge from the wrath of God because he bore the penalty of our sin. Jesus Christ is able to keep and to save forever all those who put their trust in him for their righteousness, for their everything. Praise the Lord for that. So now let me ask the same things that we asked at the first of this. Why am I here at this Christian college? Why do I go to chapel? Why do I go to church? Some go because just like in John 6, their parents wanted them to. Probably a lot of people drug their kids. Some like to be in a nice moral environment. They, w- they like the way it makes them feel about themselves to hang around Christians. They like the way it salves their conscience because of the way they live the rest of the week. Some go because of friends or because of sports or because of social reasons or even to gain some detached knowledge. Some worship their knowledge about God but have never eaten of Jesus Christ, have never taken him inside. Those of us who have trusted fully in Christ need to rejoice. He will keep us forever. And as he said, he will in no way cast us out. Though we may stumble often, he promises what in Philippians 1? That he'll finish the work that he started in us. Let's look at Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Such an encouragement for us who have truly put our hearts in the shelter of the Most High. Psalm 91, starting at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night, or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, or the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. And this is it, verse 9. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. God is where we live as Christians. We have run for refuge in Jesus Christ. He is our rock and our refuge and our shelter and and our fortress in the day of trouble. He is our righteousness, our refuge, and he is our everything. But even in my Christian life, this is the exhortation I saw as I was studying this for myself. I still find myself drifting into sin and seeking for my sufficiency in other things. I look for my sufficiency maybe in my job or my ministry. I think, well, that's what defines me, you know. I'm am an RD and I do spiritual things, but or or I look to my relationships, my girlfriend or my friends or or people or events or the next concert. I look for something to keep me going to the next the next step I I rely on my hobbies I seek for sufficiency in my friends my emotions or my logic or even my theology devoid from love but Jesus Christ is sufficient and the Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ so I need to know this Bible I need to meditate upon this Bible so that I may know and I may love and I may live for the one who is everything to me because I have placed my whole being in his hands so I'm going to close with about six scripture verses in a row. You guys don't need to turn there because I'll hear pages of flapping and flying the whole time. So but you can write down the references if you're interested. But it says it much better than me. It describes what true Christianity is now. Christ who is our life. Colossians three, verses two through four says this. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Philippians 3, 8, and 9 says this. I count all things but loss, to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Galatians 2.20, you guys know it. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast save in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And finally, Philippians 3.3 says what? For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I pray that every day you and I would live these out, that we would boast in nothing except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would glory in nothing except for the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his love for us, that every day that we would see Christ, that we would see our helplessness and our hopelessness, apart from him and say, Lord, I have nowhere else to go. I have nothing that I can do. I am hopeless and helpless without you. Only you have the words of eternal life. You're my everything. You know, it just, it just kind of burdens me thinking about my life and thinking about where, where we may be here as a college as we take things for granted. For 22 years of my life, I, I fooled myself into believing I had a right relationship with God When I was a little kid, I heard them say that if you wanted to go to heaven, raise your hand, believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross. So I raised my hand. I thought I was okay with God. I went my own way. I did my own thing. I turned my back on God. I had no idea what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ. I came out to California. I started reading the Bible. I needed some answers about what this thing was about. And I started reading, and you know what I found out? I started reading things like, if you love me, you'll keep my... Commandments, John 14, 15. Revelation 21, 7 and 8 says what? He who overcomes shall be my son and I will be his God. But all liars, cowardly, unbelieving, immoral, so on and so on, shall be thrown into the lake of fire. There was one thing I was certain of is that I was not overcoming the world, but I was just like the world in every sense. And then in 1 John Five, five. it says who is it that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God and for the first time in my life I understood what it meant to believe in Jesus Christ and I saw my sinfulness and I asked the Lord to save my soul I said Lord I really believe I really believe save my soul forgive me for because Jesus Christ was everything or nothing we can't sit on a fence and we can't play games with God we either need to walk our own way make a break and stand before Almighty God in judgment on your own merits, according to every thought and every intention of your heart, or you can run to refuge in Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, save my soul. I'm yours forever. Those are the two options. I just pray as Christians that every day I would wake up and remember that and say, You're it, Lord. I And, and then every day when I go to bed, I can say, Lord, I messed up a lot of things. In fact, I've done that since I've been in this job. I've big time messed up a lot of things, but one thing I can I can surely hold on to is that you're everything to me. You'll cleanse me. You'll forgive me. And tomorrow, I want to obey you better, and I want to do what's right for your glory and out of love for you. But you're you're it. So anyway, let's pray, dear Lord. God, I just want to thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've given us your word, that you came to earth and that you lived the life that we needed to live and that you voluntarily died and bore the wrath that we deserved and that your eternal life conquered the eternal death that we deserve. Lord Jesus, I thank you and I praise you. I'd ask that you would forgive us that we're so ungrateful and we walk away and we run from you. Keep us close to your side. I love you and I praise you and I thank you that you truly are everything. You are eternal life. May I partake of your flesh and your blood every day in my heart. Lord, may I see my helplessness every day so that I may run to you for cleansing and forgiveness and for mercy and for strength. That you might be my everything every single day. That you might be glorified. That you might be the one who is the faithful and true lover of my soul, as I love you with my life. I'd ask that you would help us to live differently because of your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.